Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, with Pastor John King. Thank you, Miss Margaret. I have no idea who that difficult person was referring to. But it just so happens we're preaching on this particular section of the Bible today. We will be in Colossians 3, verses 18 through 21. Colossians 3, verses 18 through 21 today. Tread lightly. <clears throat> Tread lightly, yes. Very lightly. My goodness. Do we have our security folks all ready? You guys on full alert? <laughs> My goodness gracious. Yeah, we guess it's going to be a fun message today. I think it's going to be good. The Lord's got a little bit of everything for everyone. You know, uh, here we are just about to finish the book of Colossians, but... Uh, just wanted to bring up, it, it's been noted that from the beginning of chapter 3, Paul's been illustrating two elements, two elements that shape the life of a believer. If you're taking notes, they are, first of all, the root of your life, and then secondly, the fruit of your life. Those two elements. Now for the Christian, the, the root of your life, of course, is now found in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is a fact, whether you realize it or not, because God's Word is true. You know, it's not about whether you agree with God or how your feelings are that particular day. And a new life that's rooted in Christ is to be reflected in my thinking, in your thinking, and my desires, and your desires, because of who we are, or, or we should say, because of whose we are. We know that we're made complete in Him, but in order for this realization, and that's what our life is like in Christ, we, we are unfolding before us, we're realizing more and more who we are in Christ. And so for it to continue to unfold during the rest of our life here on earth, you and I are commanded to live in a certain way. We are commanded to live a life of continual pursuit of the glory and worship of God in Christ. And we're to do that by seeking the things which are above in heaven. You know, we get so brought to, you know, to it so much occupation, so much heaviness, so much uh, distraction by the things of this world. Not that they aren't important, but, you know, the Lord would have us think on the things above, where Jesus is exalted, where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. And we also think among the heavenly things like the promise that we have, that he's going to one day bring you to himself and then bring you back with him at the second coming you will appear with him. We saw in verse 4 of chapter 3, when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This has been called the final vindication. From all the persecution, the rejection, the trials and tribulation of living your life for Christ, you will finally be rewarded by being in his company 
where he is seen and acknowledged by all men. Romans 14, 11. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. And so that's the life and the destiny that you've been planted into, that you're rooted in Christ. But then we also talked the last couple of weeks about the fruit of our life. The things we are to put off or put to death. I won't go into great deal, detail about that, but we, we covered that. If you want to hear that message, you can uh, go to our webpage and pull it up. But here today, we kind of saw from last week, it was the, the, kind of, the final verse from last week in verse 17 of chapter 3 summed it all up. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we've been talking about our spiritual clothing the last couple weeks, the put on, the put off. Um, and today we're going to learn why Paul saves this part for last. Because to put on humility, to put on kindness, to put on gentleness, to put on patience, gets tested most often and most frequently, if you will, each and every day, right in the family. And so we're going to learn, you know, it's kind of interesting uh, what goes on on the home front. Now, the kids are back in school now, right? I mean, it, things are changing. Are you trying to get the kids into a regular routine? And uh, there's, a, there's a schedule now. Or the whole family has to pull together now. And to, uh, you know, summer's over, so sad. But we have to pull together and work together. And here today we have an extremely important aspect of the fruit of our lives in specific relationships, and that's with the family. And so let's read our passage, four verses, verses 18 through 21. It says, starts out, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And then husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. And of course, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And finally, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And so, Lord, we come before you, and we know that this you hold the family in high esteem. You created it. You were the one, it was your idea to join together a man and a wife to have a family and to raise children. And so, Lord, we are just going to read your instruction manual today. We're going to review uh, the things that you have for each of us, Lord. And for those that are future fathers and husbands and wives and children. And so, Lord, go before us today. We, we need your grace in this area, and, and you have certainly supplied it in great measure throughout the years. And we know that you will continue to do so today as we discuss these things. Go before us now. We pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we start with the Christian home of verses 18 and 19. And of course, it starts with the wives and the husbands. But before we talk about that, Proverbs 24, 3 and 4 is, is an important uh, passage when discussing the Christian home. Proverbs 24, 3 and 4 says, Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. 
And Tommy Heigl put it this way, in a home, these factors are like legs on a three-legged stool. If one leg is missing, the home will falter. And so what we're about to discuss, the, the teaching here, as one writer puts it, is for Christians who want to live as Christians within the home and experience the fullness of God intended for them. Unfortunately, uh, we know in our own lives sometimes and in, in the lives of others that what happens in the home can be uh, totally different than the Christian life that we proclaim out in public. I know this is a delicate subject, but it is a teaching that is much needed today, writes Kent Hughes, when marriage has fallen into disrepute. As the seven-year-old girl who had just seen the movie Cinderella was testing her neighbor's lady, her neighbor lady's knowledge of the story. And so the neighbor lady, anxious to impress the little girl, said, Oh, I know what happens at the end. What? asked the little girl. Cinderella and the prince live happily ever after. To which the little girl answered, Oh, no, they didn't. They got married. <laughs> yeah. So here we are in verses 18 through 19, as you can see. And it starts out with a command from God through Paul to wives. Wives are to continually submit to your husbands. Did I just say that? You guys know what culture says when somebody says something like that. But this is what God said, not what I said. Wives, submit to your own husbands. The word submit gets a bad rap. We've talked about this several times in the past. In the Greek word, it's hupotasso. It means to be subject to. It's a military term, if you will. To be to hupo, under, and tasso, to arrange. Now, it's continual because it's a present middle imperative type of verb in the Greek, if you will. Uh, the word was a Greek military term meaning to arrange in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In the case of marriage, and in the situation we're talking about right here, in non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, of assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Now, I know Margaret mentioned earlier about difficult people, and sometimes I can joke about these things because I get to. I have the microphone, and so. But uh, I don't want to take too much license with that. Um, but that is simply and, and straightforward. It is a command from God, but it's a voluntary command. In other words, real quickly, husbands, you don't get to command your wife to submit. God does that, and she does it voluntarily because she loves the Lord more than you. Sorry, guys. But she loves the Lord more than you, and so when she submits, she's doing it because she wants to be humble, and she wants to serve the Lord, express her love to the Lord. Now, us guys have a choice. We can make that more or less difficult, right? So the manner is, is spelled out. It's, you know, you have the command, but then you, you have the manner. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Kind of like what I said, you know, the duty of wives. It's appropriate, ladies, because you're a Christian first. You're a Christian first. You, ladies, wives, are in the Lord. And it's the right thing to do. Not because the husband is superior 
or the wife is inferior. It's God's order for the family. And oh boy, has our society attacked that. And that's right where the, fam the family gets attacked, among other places. So those of you who object to these old-fashioned ways, perhaps a little historical context would be helpful. And I, I want to say this, uh, I just want to explain that when Paul wrote this, it was a radical teaching. William Barclay wrote this. He said, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal right whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatsoever in the initiation of a divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing. She lived in the woman's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. For there was, from her was a demand to, of complete servitude and chastity. But her husband could go out as much as he chose. And he could enter into as many relationships outside of marriage as he liked and incur no stigma from society. Both under Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belonged to the husband and all the duties belonged to the wife. So when Paul wrote this, you know, when we look at it, we see, oh, that's old-fashioned, what you're talking about. Well, that's because of the amazing and still, you know, ongoing rights that women have achieved in our society. I'm not saying we've arrived. But from Paul, when he wrote this, it was a radical change to the society of the day. Christianity lifts everyone up and shows no favorites. But God has specific roles for each of us. And so when we read these passages, it's important us to recognize that given the culture of the day, the fact that men and women here in the Bible are being addressed as equals is a big deal. Each of us have our own command and our own duty from God. And this was radically new. Hughes writes, This brought a vast dignity to both men and women. They were both under the lordship of Christ as equals. All of this was immensely elevating to women and would raise their positions greatly in the ancient and the modern world. If you're taking notes, maybe you should divide what I'm about to say in two sections. First of all, what submission is and what submission isn't. We need to define that. Uh, because we get it wrong. So what, what, I'll well, start with what submission, in this context, what it isn't. Submission of a wife to a husband isn't being subject to any form of abuse, to being forced to commit or condone any sinful acts. That is not biblical submission. Biblical submission does not indicate or imply any bit of inferiority, unworthiness, unusefulness, it doesn't diminish dignity or equality in the eyes of God. Submission 
Biblical submission by a wife or woman is restricted to marriage and church leadership roles. It isn't conditional. This is important now. Ladies, wives, hear me. It is not conditional. Your submission to your husband is not conditional on how well your husband performs his duties. What is submission? Well, first of all, submission is wise. We read from Proverbs this morning. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Submission is also understanding. Because submission is following by the model that was set by Jesus himself. Ladies, if you're a Christian and you're a spouse of a husband and you see this command to... to uh, Submit to your husband. Keep in mind that your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, submitted himself to the Father. Philippians 2, 5 and 8 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So Jesus is equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now one writer says it this way, there is no hierarchy in the Holy Trinity, yet there, excuse me, excuse me, there is hierarchy in the Holy Trinity, correct myself, and yet equality. Orthodoxy teaches that the Son is simultaneously equal to the Father and submissive to Him. And so likewise, equality and submissiveness can exist in human relationships. It can coexist, including the marriage relationship. And so, submission is wise, it's understanding, it's biblical. Also, it's a knowledge because a wife's submission is designed by God to fulfill her God-given role. And, you know, today's day and age, I was having a conversation with somebody recently. In our world, for a man to be a man and masculine and aggressive, that society jumps all over him. Yeah, man, you know, and on the littlest things, right? Microaggression. That's, that's an interesting one. In any event, when a woman decides to stand up for herself, all of society cheers. So when a man tries to be a man, he gets put down. When a woman tries to be a man, she's encouraged. Now I'm not talking, again, don't misunderstand me about, we're not saying we condone illegal things, abusive situations. That's not at all what the Bible says. Proverbs 31, you got, some of you ladies are tired of hearing this probably. Proverbs 31.10 says, Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. So what God means by submission is order, cooperation, a relationship, and a partnership. The way a husband and a wife are to walk together throughout life, between the two, Wife and husband, one of them has to be the primary leader. God's order for the two is that the husband is to take the lead, to have the headship in the home. 
Well, you might have a question such as these. What if my husband wants me to obey him, even if it violates the teaching of Scripture? You already know the answer to that. Acts 5.29, it says, And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So domestic violence and abuse and all the other things, even the lesser things, in some cases is against the law of society. What if my husband is not a Christian or he's not living as a Christian? What if I'm with a guy who just is not a Christian? He's not saved. And I want to honor God by remaining in the marriage. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, it says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Not fear of the husband, but fear of God. A word to the wise, a word to single ladies. Anybody that's hearing this. You want a husband, you want to be married. Remember that 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? If you want to invite chaos into your life, ladies, you will step forward and you will go against God's wishes if you're a Christian and you marry a non-believer. As nice as he may be, he's only going to be nice for the honeymoon <laughs> phase. Everybody, every man struggles with that. Next we see in verse 19, this is where I know you ladies are going to be taking notes, God's commands for the husbands. Husbands are to continually love your wives and you're not to treat them harshly. So God gives two commands to the husband. First the command is continual love. Love at agapeo. This is again a present tense verb meaning continuous action. This command is, is just as radical as God's command to the wife unto submission. Why? How? Look at 525. It says husbands, Ephesians 525. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So it's a, it's a command of continual love just as Christ's second command, not to be embittered. A husband is not to get harsh with his wife. He's not to be bitter toward her, irritated and exasperated. This is acted out by treating your wife rudely, disrespectfully, or with a cold resentment. And let me say, men, if you want to tear down your own house, uh, or if you don't want to tear down your own house, do not disrespect your wife, uh, especially in front of others, ever. And I know we're all guilty of that. And that's what seeking forgiveness and repentance is all about. Anybody that's been married for any length of time know that there's a lot of forgiveness being sought in the relationship. Why does God give men this second command? Well, uh, no surprise, ladies and gentlemen, but we married sinners. My wife married a sinner. I married a sinner. 
And because we're married, we married sinners, just like husbands who sometimes fail to love, we fail in our, our role as a husband, wives will sometimes fail to submit. And then, men, we will be tempted to become bitter and exasperated about that. But unless you have a, a true biblical understanding of what submission means, and a true biblical understanding of what love means, it, it's going to be hard to put it all together. Now, what it, what it means, what, what love, okay, first of all, what love isn't and what love is. And our, our world has uh, turned the whole meaning upside down when it comes to biblical love. And I'll start out by saying that first of all, men, love is not conditional on how well the wife performs her biblical duties. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love. You see, if you're going to die and give your life as Christ did to the church, well, think about what Christ did for us. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it isn't, and this is something that I have been in, in this trap. Men get in this trap sometimes. It's not simply fulfilling an obligation. It's not simply providing a home and food and clothing. That lo that's not loving your wife. That's, that's fulfilling an obligation, yes, but that's not necessarily loving your wife. It's also not uh, eros, erotic love, or friendship. Those are both important commands that the Bible talks about, but that's not the love we're talking about. This is called sacrificial love. What it is is love that's in action. And husbands, we are to be men of action. We are to love her so much that we would die for her. And we should seek to prove it, not just because it benefits you, but seek to prove it every day. One of my favorite, and I've often quoted him, uh, one of my favorite pastors and commentators is a man named R. Kent Hughes. Some of you know him. He's a prolific writer. Uh, he's been in ministry for 50 plus years and he's got a lot of wisdom. And he offers some good principles for us husbands and how we are to love our wives. So if you're taking notes, guys, or mental notes, whatever it is, or you can look at your wife's notes later, it's supposed to be, first of all, four things that we are supposed to do as husbands. First of all, our love for our wife is to be incarnational. From the start of creation, God called the husband and the wife together. I don't have a slide for this. You know Genesis 2.24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So our love is incarnational. We said it earlier from Ephesians 5.28 and 29. It says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We will definitely, gentlemen, we will definitely struggle with this high calling, but it's not impossible. And, and there's an example that we see sometimes um, when how husbands, or, you know, and this could go either way, but how husbands... Uh, often care, or husbands and wives, often care for one another during times of illness. If you've been married a long time, you know that if you stick around in this world long enough, one of the two of you is going to come up with some, uh, could, could come up with a serious illness. 
or disease. And that's where your love for one another is going to really show itself. But you know that God has to be the one to equip that person. So Kent Hughes tells of a story. He tells of a story that was written by a doctor. His name was Robert Sizer. Robert Sizer wrote a book called Mortal Lessons. Notes on the Art of Surgery. <clears throat> Dr. Sizer tells of performing a surgery to remove a tumor in which it was necessary to sever a facial nerve in order to remove that tumor, leaving this young woman's mouth permanently twisted in palsy. In Dr. Sizer's own words, he says this. He describes the scene. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself. He, with this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously and greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I, so close, can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. Guys, it is possible to love your wife as your own body. Practically, this means that the husband must do all he can to understand her world. Another thing that he points out is not only is it incarnational, but it's time together and listening. Are you and your spouse best friends? Do you like them as a person? Do you try to spend a lot of time together? Love is also sacrificial. Sometimes, guys, that we may stay, we stay at home to take care of the things we promised we would do around the house instead of that important event that's coming up. This is what it means on a practical level to die for our wives. I told you guys the ladies would be taking notes here. Also prayerful. Men and husbands, are you interceding in prayer for your wife? Are you praying for her daily responsibilities? How she relates to the kids and the neighbors? For the challenges that she has. But you may have a question. You may, you may have some objections. You say, the uh, same question that the wife would ask of her husband, about her husband. What if my wife is not living up to her calling as a Christian spouse? And perhaps she is an unbeliever as well. 
1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor and value to the wife as the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together in the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. I, I will explain what weaker vessel means because of the day we live in. It's not an implication of inferiority, but it is physically weaker by God's design. Men are usually, and I say usually, more durable emotionally, kind of like iron skillets as opposed to fine china. But sometimes I've been told that I'm like a bull in a china shop. Well, not just sometimes. <clears throat> so, Hughes continues, he says, we have seen two radical calls here. One call is to wives, and that's to submission. And the other is to husbands, to love as Christ loves. These cannot be read in isolation because they go together. It is unthinkably absurd for a Christian husband to demand submission of his wife if he is not radically loving her. Likewise, it is errant logic for a woman who is not submissive to demand such love. Single men, if you're thinking about getting married, young men, I'll repeat the same verse. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Next, we move into the Christian family. We talked about the husband and the wife. Now we're going to talk about the Christian family. We talked about the Christian home. I recall a while back hearing a sermon from a pastor who said, quote, there's no joy like family joy and there's no pain like family pain. The more we study ordinary lives, famous lives, anyone's life, the outcome is directly tied to how we were raised and how well we behaved. And so, children, kids, those who may hear this, young ones. Verse 21 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. In other words, children, you are to continually obey your parents. I know your parents are taking notes. The word obey is another Greek word, hupakuo. It's to listen. Now, this isn't, this isn't just, uh, you know, some sort of a blind uh, obedience. It's an intelligent obedience. It's to listen attentively in order to conform or to do a command. You know, take the trash out. You're not just, you know, you're not just giving your parents uh, your eyes looking at them. You're also looking to hear what they have to say so that you can carry out the command. The command obey um, includes a very wide scope of things. In fact, your scripture says, it says obey your parents in all things. Now kids, don't start practicing your lawyer skills with mom and dad because they already tried it when they were young and they already know your tricks. The reason, kids, why you obey your parents is because you love your parents, right? Of course it is. Not always. You don't feel love for them sometimes. But the main reason is because it's well-pleasing to the Lord. 
And kids, if you're Christians, if you're a believer, you want to please God. Now, unfortunately, what this obedience does not mean, keep in mind, we live in a society, we live in a world with increasing levels of genuine child abuse. So there are clearly exceptions to obedience. Parents do not have the right to be cruel or to go against Scripture with how they treat their children. Acts 5.29 applies, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. At the same time, hear me now, at the same time, kids, our society has largely abandoned biblical principles and they have undercut or tried to parental authority in the home in ways that we would have never, ever thought possible. Now, we do see signs that parents are now pushing back in our society. But consider the type of control that some states want and some states may have. They want child access without parental notification on the following things. Contraceptives, abortion, gender transition, and drugs, and even surgeries. And then, of course, we have drag queen story hour in school and public libraries all over the country now, apparently. But what it is, we've already kind of covered what to obey is not. It should not be subject to cruelty or abuse. But what it is, is it's simple and straightforward. Obedience is not voluntary, like submission, a wife to a husband. Kids, you can't say, well, mom, she volunteers to be submissive to you, but I, I don't want to volunteer to do that. No, no, that's not how it works. It's a different word than submission. Remember, it's a different word. It's to listen and be ready to obey both of your parents. Now, kids, I know that you will get frustrated and if you do, and, and if you want to threaten your, your parents because you've got a friend who tells you that that's old-fashioned and that friend gets to do whatever they want, consider how God sees it. You see, kids, disobedience to your parents is very, very serious. In the Old Testament, it would be a pain of death. But Paul lists it in Romans chapter 1 as a symptom of wickedness subject to God's wrath. Notice it says there in verse 30 of chapter Romans 1, you see the list of people who God is going to, his wrath is going to be poured out on backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, and those who are disobedient to your parents. If you continue to live a life Obedience is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. Notice, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. That's how serious, kids, God takes obedience to your parents. And your time spent under your parents' Guidance is to prepare you for when you get out into the world. Because then you'll 
You'll be, you'll be able to, people will be able to say, you, you know, this, this young man or this young woman, having learned to obey their mom and dad, you have the ability in life of discipline, of order, and self-control. And let me tell you that, people value that. People, employers value that. People value your ability to have lived and grown up under a Christian home raised by Christian parents. And I will tell you that you can take it from a wayward, my, if you've heard my testimony, we're not going to go into all that, but I was a wayward, I was disobedient, and for a time in my life, I was a very disrespectful son to my mom and dad. And I will, you will live to regret, because I still do, you will live to regret how you treated your parents if you don't heed God's instructions. Fathers, it's your turn. Verse 21, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The command, fathers, do not provoke your children, in a bad sense, means to stir them up to rebellion. Now you kind of may ask a question. I ask a question. This is a specific direction given to fathers. Why is that? We know it applies to both the father and the mother, but why is that? And some suggest that the dad is typically away from the kids more as they grow up. And this is, you know, the world has changed. I understand that. But there's typically the dads away more often. And so Dads who work away from the home for, uh, you know, regular week, work weeks and long hours, they can lose touch with the kids' feelings. And they can also, dads can be more prone to make false judgments and unwise decisions and provide unwise direction. And so he says, the command is not to provoke your children and the reason is so that they will not lose heart, so that they will not be dis become discouraged dispirited. I must say right off, right off the bat what provoking your children is not. It's not holding your children accountable to God and to you, the parent. Some advice from a pastor, he said this, children don't need another pal, they need an authority figure who sets boundaries for protection and guidance. When a boundary is crossed, there must be discipline because rules without discipline is nothing more than suggestions. Proverbs 29, 17. Correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give you delight to your soul. If you've ever dealt with a rebellious child, you'll know that the opposite can be true. What provoking is, and I'll say, you know, this is what provoking really means, guys. It means rules without a relationship and that leads to rebellion. When you have nothing but rules in your house with no relationship. This is true in your relationship with God. And it's true to dads how you can be a discourager in the life of your children. We've all said it, fathers. Do as you're told. Why? Because I said so. I mean, you know, that's, that's the quick answer. But let me say with respect that perhaps you needed to remind them because God says so. God says so. Or how about do as I say, not as I do. Well, you won't often say that, but you can certainly live a life that shows that. 
A hypocritical parent creates a cynical child. And a cynical child can become an abuser if they get married or they can, they can forego marriage altogether. And that's a whole other topic about where our society's been going with the institution of marriage. We'll save that for the marriage retreat in February. <coughs> Dads, there are four things, if you're taking notes, that will provoke your child. And there's probably many, many more, but these are four important things. First of all, failing to accept that things change. Dads and parents, you should not expect your child's growing up experience to be exactly like yours was. <laughs> there are going to be, with every generation, changes. We now live in the digital age. We often say, I was always forced to go outside when I was growing up. Well, we live in the digital age. And in this generation, they like to play video games. That is a change. And a lot of parents have a hard time with that. But as parents, here's what you need to concentrate on. Because, you know, these generational changes are going to happen. But you need to concentrate on rebellion, stopping that, immorality, and injustice. Because those are the things that go against God's word. So if you want to understand, you know, how do I deal with a changing culture, just concentrate on the things that go against God's word. The other thing, one of the four things, the second thing is the mistakes we make as parents is to be over-controlling and over-emphasis as a disciplinarian. How many times have you ever heard, my dad had never had anything good to say to me. I was never good enough. You've heard of John Newton. He was the great preacher and hymn writer who experienced such a wretched life before turning to Christ. And he said this, he said, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. Kent Hughes wrote this, he, said, he, he talks about uh, him growing up in Southern California and during his college years, he worked for a store that had a large part of the trade of the rodeo cowboys in Southern California. And he writes this, he says, I learned that there are at least two ways to break a horse. One is with the progressive use of a halter, a bit, a blanket, and saddle. Done correctly, this can produce a full-spirited, obedient horse. Another way is sometimes used with especially difficult horses. This method is simple. The wrangler simply takes a two-by-four and knocks the recalcitrant horse to its knees. A horse, it is said, can be tamed this way, but with great cost. You will have a spiritless animal. An animal that, though is obedient, will never be what it could have been. There are children who are like this. Their spirits have been broken. They are obedient, but something is missing. They have, to use Paul's words in verse 21, lost heart. They withdraw and keep it all inside. Or they rebel when they get big enough. The results are painful either way. Another problem we see as parents is under-controlling. We really see that. It should be noted that this is the most prevalent problem in industri industrialized society, one writer puts it. 
In an industrialized society, there is a tendency for those with plenty or with wealth to pamper, indulge, and give a child everything imaginable, well beyond what a child needs and what is really best for him or her. When parents indulge or pamper their kids to keep them busy so they can take care of their own needs, you know, sometimes you give your kids all the toys, all the candy, whatever they need just to get out of my hair. If you do that too often, you're under controlling. Or if you give them uh, these things to gain social standing, to try and overcompensate for the lack that you perceived when you were growing up. See, when I raise my kids, it's not going to be like that. But you can under uh, control your kids by doing that. Or you, you simply want to keep the peace in order to stop them from whining or pouting or having a temper tantrum. You're not doing your kids any favors. Or when you try to do it in order to gain your child's affection or loyalty. That's for grandparents. <laughs> or, or you do it when you, you try to spoil your kids because of your own insecurity. Those things are not good. And finally, there's inconsistency, the lack of consistency. Sometimes you're either too harsh or overly strict. And always know, uh, this will hit you hard, always know is a lazy approach to parenting. Inconsistency comes in the form of a lack of presence. We know that the lack of presence, the lack of dads in the home, especially in some communities in our culture, but all communities are affected by it, has led to crime, poverty. Uh, one survey, and a rather old survey, quoted that a father, a working father, spends an average time of 37 seconds with their kid per day. I wonder what it's like on a good day. Inconsistency also is from a, being a bad example. And the question for us as parents and grandparents is do, you, do your kids learn how to overindulge in alcohol from you? How about your TV and your movie choices? Or are you always simply wasting time? Perhaps a self-evaluation is in order. You can ask the question, are my kids afraid of me? 1 John 4.18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Nobody said it was easy. It wasn't easy then, it's not easy now, and it won't be easy to parent in future generations. That's why the Lord had to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's why we're promised a glorious future. We know about the breakdown of the family caused by the world, the flesh, and the, and the devil. The world has us, you know, working. Double income, no kids, get all the stuff. You know, he, would, he who dies with the most toys wins. And then we have constant attacks on the family. That's the world, what it's doing. It's what is happening all around us. I don't need to remind you of that. The flesh, you know, we talked about overindulging your children. This children worship, worshiping your children, doing anything they tell you to do, letting them have any freedom that they want. 
Wanting now to be your child's best friend. Let me tell you, in a healthy situation, not perfect, when your child grows up, you can be their friend. And you will have, you will have a great friendship. But while they're your kid, they don't need another pal. And then, of course, the influence of the devil, the whole transing of America, the increase in abortion, etc., etc., etc. Let me say, as we close, that this type of message can be difficult to hear and to deliver. We joke about life and family. Some of us have come from very, some very rough surroundings. I've heard it in some of your testimonies, and I've shared about it in mine. It is painful. But remember, our God saves and mends the brokenhearted. He makes beauty from ashes. He restores what life's locusts have devoured. That's our God. That's what he does. Some of us have come from wonderful God-fearing homes and have gone ahead to raise and are raising our own kids in the Lord and praise God for that. So wherever you are, whatever your background is, it's never too late. Parents, husbands, and wives, when you see danger ahead, Make that course correction. And kids, remember that God holds you accountable too. And someday by His grace, you may have a family to raise and nurture as well. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for our time today. Lord, we love You and we understand that You have a little bit of everything for each of us, Lord. None of us has arrived in our life as whatever role you've given us in this world, as a parent, as a husband, as a child, wherever you have for us as in our present life situation as grandparents, as a single man or woman, you have, a, you have a role for each of us. And Lord, we know your grace is sufficient to cover all the wounds of our past. And we thank you much for that. And we know that if we follow your steps, life may not be easier, but we will have a peace inside that goes beyond all understanding. Even in the toughest, most difficult of situations, we will be able to rise up and, and worship you in spirit and truth. And so, Lord, I ask that you simply go before us and all the families that are represented here today and those who couldn't be here. We love you, Lord. And we look to give this opportunity to sing to you once again as we close our service. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.